Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This is episode number one, and it's brought to you by Take Control Books, ebooks by expert authors you know on tech topics you care about. Jeff, it's really great to be here on the very first episode of our new podcast, Photoactive. I'm excited. I'm excited we're doing this. I'm really excited to look at photography and make the link between the things that interest us personally and professionally. That's using a Mac and using iPhones and iPads. I think one of the reasons we wanted to do this was because Apple is really focused on photography and has been for a long time. And most likely you and your friends and your family all have some sort of uh, Apple device or some sort of device with a camera. And it seems like there needed to be something that just spoke to that. Probably a billion people have iPhones and iPads and iOS devices in general. I don't remember the last figure that Apple mentioned about how many are active. But when you think about it, every one of those people has a really high-powered digital camera in their pocket. You know, if you think back to the early days of digital cameras when they were just a few megapixels, and they were slow, and they maybe didn't have autofocus, and they didn't have good metering... And we've come so far now that there are professional photographers who use an iPhone to take pictures. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I mean, a lot of magazines now have uh, photos that have been shot with iPhones, which, you know, for, for some reason, like, like a magazine cover seems to be the uh, level of quality to sort of say, oh, something has arrived, even though I'm sure that, that there are plenty of magazine covers shot with uh, even wor- you know, worse quality cameras. And I think... A big part of this, too, is just that it's not like you have to go out and spend $5,000 on a camera to get a good image. You can buy an iPhone because you want the Internet access. You want you know to be able to make calls, uh, if, if people make calls on iPhones anymore. I'm not even sure. Um, and you also get a very high-quality camera. It's, it's amazing to me how much research and development and effort and money and time Apple has put into the mobile camera space. I mean, Apple has been interested in photography for a long time. They've, you know, had iPhoto and photos and aperture back in the day. That's a big topic that we can discuss at some point. Um, You know, when the iPhone came out, they really realized that, oh, people can see this feature as something that will delineate them from other products and that people really want to have a camera with them all the time. And so Apple's photo focus went into the stratosphere because they realized this is something that we could do and this is also a, a you know a technology problem they could solve. Yeah, and and I think one of the most important things to me about the smartphone slash camera revolution is that you simply don't need gear. You don't need to worry about what type of camera you have, what type of lens. You don't need to worry about filters and flashes. Well, you can't really get great flash photos with an iPhone at night, but you know, it's it there are some limitations, but you can do this without all the gear. You know, when we were talking about setting up this podcast, we both agreed that we don't want to talk about gear. We're not going to be reviewing cameras here. We're not going to be reviewing lenses. We're not going to be reviewing tripods and studio lighting setups and all the rest of that. We will talk about gear to say, well, here's why you might want to use this type of lens or that type of lens, different focal length or 
here's why you might want to use a polarizing filter. But this is not going to be a show about gear. It's a show about taking pictures and making the pictures look good. And you can do this with an iPhone. You can do this with a more expensive camera. Coincidentally, we both use Fujifilm cameras, and we were both drawn to them probably for similar reasons. We both have very good cameras, and these days you would call them professional quality cameras, even though they're not Leicas, and I do lust after a Leica, I must admit. <laughs> but you can take real serious pictures with an iPhone with no gear. You don't even need any of these add-on lenses that they sell or anything else that makes it look like a camera. You can just use a phone and you can take very good pictures. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, gear certainly has its place. Um, and I think, you know, especially the two of us coming from a, a technology uh, reporting background, you know, I mean, I mean, we have probably written so much about various types of, of all sorts of gear. It's an easy sort of safe space to go to because, um, you know, as you know, as I'm sure everybody listening to this knows, you know, there's this thing called gear acquisition syndrome. You buy a camera and then you're like, oh, well, I need a better lens. And well, now I need a strobe light. And well, maybe I need this kind of tripod. And there are good reasons for getting some of those things, but it's so easy to fall into that trap of, I can't make any good photos unless I have a 50 millimeter f1.4 prime lens. Or the fact that you've seen that a great photographer like Joel Myrowitz uses a Leica. And you figure that if you have a Leica, you'll be able to take pictures like Joel Myrowitz. Probably your pictures will look exactly the same as they did before. They might have some better technical quality. They won't have the same compositional quality of a great photographer. Exactly. And granted, it's it's a little harder to come to that point where you're where you're making better pictures because of what you're seeing rather than the gear that you're using. And so I think part of the reason that we want to do this is we want to encourage people that, you know, yes, gear can be important, but the important part is that you have something that will take a photo and then what you bring to it, that's what makes a good photo to you. And that can be, you know, whether it's, it's uh, compositionally sound, whether the lighting is good. I mean, there's just a vast array of factors that go into it. But I think one of the things that appealed to me uh, to do this podcast and just to do photography in general is that capability of being able to take a camera wherever you are and find a good picture wherever you are. It doesn't have to be like a landscape or a portrait and not get hung up on the limitations, the things that we say, well, I can't make this photo because I don't have a wide angle lens. Because, you know, the, the reality is there are pictures everywhere and you can make a, a, a photo using whatever camera that you have wherever you are. And I think people forget that and, and need to be reminded. I mean, I need to be reminded of that quite often. I think the minimalist aspect of the iPhone, and, and let's be honest, other smartphones too. The iPhone is not the only smartphone with a good camera. I think the minimalist aspect of this is something that makes photography both more accessible, yet probably not necessarily simpler, because if everyone can take photos that have a technical level that's quite good, 12 megapixels, really good software in the camera to turn out JPEGs that look good, built-in HDR, if anyone can take photos like that, then we're just awash with photos. So if you're really interested in taking photos to make good photos, more than just your vacation or your pets or your families, and I take lots of cat photos, so 
I'm all in favor of pet photos. <laughs> you need to go just a little bit further and start learning how to take photos rather than just how to take pictures with a smartphone. And part of this is understanding how to use the tool, whether it's an iPhone or whether it's a more expensive camera, there are features that you need to know about. And another part of it is post-production. When you've taken your picture, you may want to edit that photo. And this could be as simple as cropping it, changing the exposure a little bit, the lighting, but there are all sorts of advanced things that you can do and you don't need a PhD in Photoshop to do them. We're very different as far as photo editing and, and even photo management is concerned. You're the Lightroom guy. So Lightroom is this Adobe product and it's got all the complications of Lightroom and it's got all the advantages of Lightroom. And I do most of my editing with Apple Photos because I decided a while ago that this is good enough for 95% of what I do. And anyone who has a Mac has Apple Photos. Anyone who has an iPad or an iPhone has a version of that app, albeit somewhat limited in terms of, of editing possibilities. But everyone has a tool that they can use to make their photos better. Now, we're not only going to talk about photos in Lightroom. There are dozens, maybe hundreds of other apps, both for the Mac and for iOS, that you can use to edit photos. But this process of learning to take better photos and learning to improve them with the software is something that really anyone can do. This isn't complicated multiple layers with invert masks <laughs> and pixel peeping and all that. These are little sliders and buttons and you try them and if it doesn't work, you undo. And they're things that don't damage your photos so you can always go back to the original anyway. Well, and I would add to that, I think there's this mindset that uh, you know, I run into all the time talking to people. People know that, that they need to edit their photos and that can be either, you know, making something a little bit brighter that if it was shot too dark or, or, or more complicated things. And maybe credit this to Adobe marketing over the years. Everybody has this thought in their head, this little seed that says, oh, well, I need Photoshop. Even people who have Photoshop, a lot of them say, well, I have Photoshop, but it's too complicated to use. And to try to dive into it is just a, a big mess and it's going to take me hours. And, and so, you know, things like just get pushed off and, and they don't do it. And the reality is sort of paralleling the, the rise of, of smartphone cameras and, and digital photography in general is that there is so much very sophisticated photo editing that can be done using all sorts of tools, using something like Snapseed on an iPhone or, you know, Lightroom on the desktop or on mobile. There are just so many ways that you can get some extremely sophisticated editing done and you don't have to know any of that stuff. Even if that's just applying some filters in Instagram, which kind of have the, their pluses and minuses, but it's something that, that, that can be done and you don't have to make that, that giant hurdle to, oh, now I need to be a photo editing expert. It's like, no, you have a photo, you probably have an idea of, of what needs to change with that photo. And the options for doing that are extremely easy. They are free in many cases. And it doesn't need to be a stress point that I think a lot of people struggle with. Well, historically, the Adobe industrial complex developed because there weren't many accessible apps. And it's only in the past few years that these things have become available and affordable. And I think on the Mac, a lot of this has to do with Apple's graphics support. I don't really know how it works. They have this thing called Metal, which 
provides fast graphics for video and photos and gaming and all that. And I think that has a big effect. So for many years, people just assumed it had to be Photoshop. And if you read a camera magazine, a photography magazine, then there are always articles about Photoshop and about Lightroom, and they rarely talk about the other apps. But as you say, editing a photo can be a very, very simple process. I'm going to put two photos in the show notes. Now, it's kind of difficult to do a podcast about photography where people can't see photos. And we didn't want to do a video podcast because what's less interesting than watching two middle-aged men talk about anything and then showing photos maybe for one minute out of a half an hour? So you'll find in the show notes a link to the page, which contains the show notes. This is somewhat recursive here. And in the show notes, we'll be putting photos. We'll be putting links to articles that we discuss, but we will generally have several photos for each episode. So you can either check these photos out while you're listening to the podcast, if you're doing it at home in front of your computer or if you're on your phone, or you can check them out afterwards. So I'm going to put two photos into the show notes. My partner's brother went to Italy last summer. Now, all he had with him was an iPhone 7 Plus. He doesn't know anything about photography, and he's slightly limited physically, so he can't really do very much even with a real camera. And he wanted these photos just to remember his trip, and he took hundreds of photos. And one day when he was visiting, I was talking to him, and I said, you know what, I want to show you something. And he had a photo that he took, and I don't remember where it was, but a canal. I don't think it was Venice. And I said, you know that photo, let me show you how to make it better. So I got my MacBook Pro, and in about 30 seconds, I took his photo and straightened it and fixed the contrast and the sky and everything, and it looks like a nicer photo. Now, he didn't particularly care too much, but I think it's a really good example to see how little you need to do to take a photo that's just not quite right into something that's really almost memorable. Definitely. And, and I think also one thing that I hope that we can impart to people is being able to, to look at a photo and see what needs to be done to it. To see its potential. To see its potential, yes. Because there's so many photos that there, there's so many people who will look at something and say, well, that's okay. Or I know that there's something wrong with this, but I don't really know what. And oftentimes, this is going to sound almost heretical to a lot of photographers or photo editors. A lot of programs have like a little auto button. And there's this sort of notion that's like, well, if you click the auto button, it means you don't really know what you're doing. And therefore, uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And I know what I'm doing. I've written about this. I click the auto button all the time because A, the algorithms for, for auto-correcting photos have gotten much better in recent years, but also because it gives you an idea of, okay, what does the software think this should look like? And it might be completely wrong, or it might be different than what you have in your head or what you remember from the day that you took it, but it gives you a starting place. And I think for a lot of people, the starting place is where they need to be, and they don't quite know how to get there. It's great that you mentioned that. I sometimes feel like a fraud because every time I take a photo in Apple Photos and I want to edit it, the first thing I do is I click that little button. It's called Auto Enhance, and it looks like a little magic wand with sparks coming out of it. The first thing I do every time is I click that button. I look at what the software thinks, as you say, what it thinks it should look like, and I'll do one of two things. I'll accept what it's done and then adjust based on the changes it's made. Or I'll undo it, press Command Z, undo it, and then I'll start altering things myself. And these are little sliders that you drag back and forth. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the coming years. 
but I always do that. It's the first thing. And sometimes I click it and I say, you know what? That's almost exactly what I want. I just need to tweak the contrast a little bit or something like that. Let's take a break and hear what our sponsor has to offer this week. The Photoactive Podcast is brought to you by Take Control Books, ebooks by expert authors you know on tech topics you care about. Take Control publishes books about Apple hardware and software, including books by Jeff and me. Take Control Books help you understand your Mac or iOS device, focusing on topics such as keeping your devices working well, privacy, security, and how to use popular Apple and third-party apps. Take Control Books are published like software. We offer free bug fixes and minor updates and discounted upgrades to new editions. Some Take Control books that might interest you include Jeff's Take Control of Your Digital Photos and Take Control of Lightroom CC, Jason Snell's Photos, a Take Control Crash Course, and I've written Take Control books about iTunes, Scrivener, LaunchBar, and Audio Hijack. We have a special offer for photoactive listeners. You can get 30% off any book using the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to TakeControlBooks.com slash PHOTOACTIVE, that's PHOTOACTIVE in one word, and you'll get the discount automatically. Take Control Books, ebooks by expert authors you know on tech topics you care about. So Jeff, you've said that you haven't been taking pictures very long. When did you get into photography? How long has it been? I mean, you've been writing these books for a long time. I would say I've probably been into photography... 12 years or so. I'd have to go back on my, my Flickr uh, page to see. I can mark it for, by a specific trip. So you had mentioned earlier sort of feeling like a fraud. And this is my little uh, imposter syndrome here, is that I'm not one of these photographers who had a brownie in his hand when he was five years old or, you know, spent years and years in the dark room. I am very late to this game. I never really shot on film. And so I feel like my photography has grown with digital photography in that I'm not tethered to a past where I, I think that things should be done a certain way. Now, granted, a lot of um, digital photography is based on film photography, a lot of the, the, the measurements, a lot of the terminology. But I've enjoyed the fact that, you know, for example, I can shoot hundreds and hundreds of photos without worrying about film or processing time or, or any of that, I can do that completely without guilt and throw away a whole bunch of those because a lot of those are going to be crap and that's okay. So, so going back to like, like how I actually got started, I had been shooting with little point and shoot cameras, even, you know, digital point and shoot cameras. And, and those were perfectly fine. And I had an opportunity to go to South Africa with my wife. And that was a trip where I was like, okay, I'm going to go, like, literally going to be on safari. And a point and shoot isn't going to cut it. So I bought a little Canon Super Zoom. It wasn't a DSLR. It had a, um, uh, you know, a, a fixed lens that could, you know, get a really great, great zoom range. And I took that with me. And that basically, like... I was hooked because I could take pictures that were more than just, hey, I'm here, click, click, and, and think about composition and start seeing things as a photographer, which is, is I think, one of the key things to taking pictures. And it just so happened that an editor at Peach Pit Press saw some of those photos and said, hey, you seem to take okay pictures, and we know you can write. 
would you like to write a book about this camera? And of course, I'm a freelance writer, so I said, yes, of course I could do this. <laughs> and it's been, it's been kind of a, a long ride ever since. What about you, Kirk? Well, my experience with photography goes back a very long way, and it's been punctuated by a lot of empty space. My first experience was in the early 1970s when I was in high school, and my high school had shop classes. Everyone had to do shop classes, and there was wood shop and metal shop and auto shop, and all the, you know, athletes were doing auto shop, and they would take apart a car, and at the end of the term, they'd put it back together. And I didn't want to do that, and they had a photography shop, and I had never taken pictures other than, I think my parents had a Polaroid for a while. And I found it really interesting. We had some cameras, we had black and white darkroom material and watchers and chemicals and all that. And I found it really interesting and moved on. And then in the early 1980s, I bought a film camera. I said, you know what? I want to take pictures. And I was involved with a lot of creative people at the time, writers and musicians and all that. So I thought a film camera would be interesting. I bought an Olympus OM-10, I believe it was. I maybe had two lenses. I had a 50 millimeter lens and I maybe had a telephoto lens. And I would walk around New York City and take pictures. And I had absolutely no idea at the time what I was taking pictures of. I was just looking for interesting things. And I would develop every once in a while. There were places where you could rent a darkroom by the hour and I would develop some photos. And, and that was kind of interesting. Then I left New York in 1984. I'm went to France for a year and stayed for 28 years. So I didn't take a camera with me. And it wasn't for many years that I bought a camera. It was when my son was born after he was born in 1990. I got a, I guess you'd call it a point and shoot film camera, but a decent one that was the equivalent of a few hundred dollars. And, you know, pictures of the kid and got some good pictures of the kid. But you know how it is the, with film, you just lucky to get what you can. I moved to the Alps in 2000, the French Alps, and in 2004, I was writing a book about Mac OS X, and it was a general book covering the entire operating system, and I needed to do a chapter about iPhoto. So I bought a cheap, I think it was an HP, one megapixel digital camera, and I still have some of the photos. I'll put one in the show notes. The quality's not great because they're so small, but you'll see the atmosphere where I lived. And I only wish I had a better camera back then to have been able to take really good pictures of the mountains. So I took some pictures for a few years and took pictures of my son playing basketball and took pictures of the mountains and all that, but I never got into it that much. Then about five years ago, I moved to the UK and I said, you know what? I want to get a real camera. So I bought an Olympus OMD EM1, which was a low priced mirrorless camera with a kit zoom lens, which was, you know, good. And I caught the bug. A couple years later, I bought an Olympus Pen F and then I bought a Fuji X100F and I recently sold all my Olympus to buy another Fuji, the X-Pro2. See, we do talk about gear a little bit, but not that much. But in the past few years, I've gotten really, really interested in photography. I would say more as an art than as a craft. Now, over the years, I used to go to photo exhibits. I mean, I grew up in New York. We had all these museums and, you know, I'd go to the Metropolitan Museum for free on my way home when I worked at the GM building where the Apple store is now on Fifth Avenue and I lived on the Upper West Side. I'd walk up Fifth Avenue and I'd stop by the Met for a half hour and go home. And I don't remember exactly where, but near there, near the Met in the Guggenheim was a place where they had photo exhibits. And I would stop in there and I would check them out. And I didn't understand a lot of the photography. When I lived in Paris, the same thing. I went to photo exhibits. And in recent years, since I have good cameras and I've been getting more interested in photography, another thing that I've been doing is buying photo books. 
I have a fairly large collection, and I find it incredibly interesting to look at what other photographers do. To look at photography as an art, uh, as, as a potential of all the possibilities of how you can capture what you see around yourself. And uh, I find this really rewarding to be able to look at, say, a book of photos by William Eggleston and then go outside and in some ways see the world the way he did. Not that my photos are anything like William Eggleston's. And if you've never heard of him, we'll talk about him in another episode. But I like the fact that photography is a creative endeavor that anyone can do and that your creativity is not limited by anything. That there's no reason why a photograph that you take, even with an iPhone, couldn't end up in a museum or in a photo exhibit. There are photographers who use the Holga camera, which is a cheap plastic toy camera. Michael Kenna, a wonderful black and white landscape photographer, who we'll talk about in another episode, recently published a book of photos he took with a Holga. Now, this is a guy who uses, I think, four by five cameras and does eight hour long exposure shots. And he walks around with a Holga and takes these little pictures because he catches things that he wouldn't catch otherwise. So anyone can make photos that are really interesting beyond just, here's my vacation, here's my children, that there is limitless possibilities in taking pictures. And to, to follow along with that, um, th this is where I also sort of get to be embarrassed because back in uh, high school or so, I remember thinking in, in terms of photography as art, I was that snobby kid who was like, oh, come on, photography is not art. You're just going to go and you're going to take a picture of whatever you see, big whoop. Like, you're not painting, you're not putting in the hours and, and all of that. Of course, now I look back and I, you know, kind of want to slap that kid upside the head because exactly what you said, photography gives you that opportunity to see what someone else is seeing. And it's not just they see a beautiful mountain range or they see a specific catch of light or something. You can get a sense of personality or, uh, you know, whimsy. There's a lot of fantastic street photography where, you know, you could be walking next to this person down the same street at the exact same time, even taking pictures, and both of you will see two different things. And, and you know, one thing might just be a boring sign and the other thing might be a glance or something that that moves you because you can empathize with, you know, whatever that person was, you know, feeling or seemed to, to be feeling at the time. For something that, that I originally thought was so limited that all you're doing is just reproducing, it turns out, and, and you know, you'll, you'll, understand more of this the more time that you spend behind a camera just like all the different choices and all the creative possibilities that are out there and and, and that's even you know just talking about taking pictures of what you see I, I mean there are people who put together vast sort of still lives and scenes and they'll set up lighting to evoke specific moods and it just sort of blossoms from there and you realize that oh there's so much more to this and yet, it's still something that is literally accessible to anyone with a camera. I like what you said about street photography. And I have this quote on my Instagram profile by Gary Winogrand, who was a very well-known street photographer. He said, I photograph to find out what something will look like photographed. And I think that's a really intense concept. I always think of the idea of taking a picture of 
you or me or whoever's looking through the viewfinder or looking at that LCD is is choosing the four corners of the frame around the world, what to include, what to exclude, regardless of questions of light, of, of color, of lens or whatever. You're choosing to freeze in time one element of the world. And sometimes you may come up with something that's really moving, that's unforgettable. Most of the time you won't. As you say, you take hundreds of pictures and most of them aren't very good. Mm -hmm. Same here. And that's great. But every once in a while you come up with something that really just stands out and that sort of connects you in a way to the world around you where you think, yeah, you know what? I really was seeing this this way. And it's very easy to communicate photography to other people as well. Everyone understands the concept of a photograph, whereas they don't necessarily understand the concept of a painting of a an improvised jazz solo of a symphony, etc. Photography is in some ways... And this is a bad thing. It's in, it can be instantaneous. Some people just take photos and share them as, as soon as they can. But in other ways, it, it's a way of communicating a certain expressiveness, a certain feeling that you've had seeing the world in a certain way. So at the end of every episode, we're going to do a brief segment, which is our snapshots of the week. And what we're going to do is we're each going to pick something that we want to talk about for a minute or two. It could be an app, a book, an accessory. Jeff, what's your pick this week? One topic that, that I can't wait to, to discuss in more depth at some point is computational photography, and which is basically all of the smarts that's happening behind the camera on a, an iPhone or Android phone, or even, you know, finally, like some, some uh, you know, digital uh, cameras. One feature of the iPhone is um, for, for cameras that have two lenses, they can generate a depth map. And so you have the, the portrait mode. It's designed so if you take a picture of someone, it identifies like where the person is, figures out the boundaries of that person, and then blurs the background. It's a really nice portrait effect. And when it works, it can really look great and, and make it look like you shot with something uh, more than just a, a, you know, a teeny tiny uh, smartphone. So there's an app that I discovered called Focos, F-O-C-O-S, at F-O-C-O-S dot M-E, Focos dot me. What that does is it takes the data that the camera app is generating and it can let you change the different layers of, of, of focus that the cameras have, have identified. So for example, let's say you want the background to be a little more blurry or a little less blurry, or you want to just adjust the highlights in that background area. Because it's been separated out nicely, the Focus app gives you more control over it. And what's also kind of cool about Focus is it has a mode where you can see where the different slices are that the camera has identified as different layers. And so if nothing else, it's fun to open it up and rotate it around and see just how all those little pieces have, have been split out. My snapshot this week is a camera strap, and it's one that I use regularly. It is the Peak Design Cuff Camera Wrist Strap. Link in the show notes for all of these things. Peak Design has a system for straps and bags where you have these little doohickeys, that's the technical word, it's a doohickey that you put through the, the holes on the side of the camera, and then there are these little circular things, and it has a, a thing that snaps onto it. You got to go to the page and, and see what it looks like. And what's really practical is that you can attach and detach straps from your camera 
in just a couple of seconds. So I have a few straps like this. And what I like about it is sometimes I want a normal strap on my camera and it's around my neck or over my shoulder. And sometimes I want to use a wrist strap. So rather than wrapping the long strap around my wrist, I can use this little wrist strap. Um, it's light. It doesn't get in the way, but it holds on to your wrist in a way that if you drop the camera, it won't fall to the ground. These Peak Design straps are interesting because of the ability to add and remove straps at any time. So if you're looking for a wrist strap, check it out. It's pretty expensive. It's probably a lot more expensive than you need to spend. But I like the fact that I feel comfortable that even if I drop my camera, it's not going to fall onto the ground. That's very important. Yes. Indeed. So that's the end of this episode. We would like to invite you to join a Facebook group that we have set up. And the goal of this Facebook group is to get people to discuss the podcast and ask any questions they may have but also to share photos. And as we go on, we're going to suggest some photo challenges that you might want to contribute to. And you might want to just post some photos and ask the members of the group, hey, what do you think I can do to make this better? Or I did this, how does this look? That kind of thing. So there's a link in the show notes to the Facebook group. Now, in order to join the Facebook group, you have to answer what the secret word is. The secret word is swordfish. When you go to join the group, you'll see a pop-up with a question, and it says, what's the secret word? And since you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know what it is. Now, of course, the reason for this is so we don't get random people joining the group, and that only people who've listened to the entire episode of the podcast, who've made it all the way through to the end, will want to join the group. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with an episode about a more interesting topic than Jeff and Kirk. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 30% off any purchase at Take Control Books with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to takecontrolbooks.com slash photoactive. That's photoactive in one word, and you'll get the discount automatically. Until next week, thanks again for listening.